Hi, I'm Dr Suzanne Reich, criminologist at the University of Southern Queensland. You are listening to I Am Not My Crime, a podcast featuring courageous people telling you the story about the crimes they have committed and their journey to redemption. I Am Not My Crime has been produced to help you understand that for many people, it is their circumstances that led them down the path to offending behaviour and that what somebody has done in the past is not an indication of who they are today. In today's episode, Alan recalls a childhood where he felt he just didn't really belong. By about nine years of age, strong feelings of bitterness and anger were beginning to show, and by 12, he had already determined that one day he would carry out a serious, violent offence. As I'm walking down the street, I just said to myself one day, I'm going to kill someone just to see what it feels like. Only six years after making this resolve, Alan and his co-offender did just that. He said, I'm sick of this guy, let's kill him. And I basically just replied very quickly. I said, yeah, why not? Because I'd already made the decision um, back when I was 12, one day I'm going to kill someone just to see what it feels like. All through Alan's story, though, there is a recurring theme of faith. Alan grew up in a Christian family, and despite his years of waywardness, Alan attributes the change in his life and his story of redemption to God having bigger plans for him in spite of his criminal past. I've had to jump so many hurdles. Is this guy real? Has he really changed? Has God really changed him? Or is he just, you know, putting on a sham? Tell us about life as young Alan and um, what it was like growing up being you. Well... I, um, I certainly didn't have the worst upbringing and uh, the worst life, but I uh, didn't have the best either. And my, uh, my mum and my dad, they separated by the time I was three years old. And uh, I basically lived with my mum for the rest of my teen life. Uh, mum got remarried again by the time I was four. And they had their first child. My mum and my stepdad had their first child by the time I was six. So my, my sister, I've got five half-sisters and a half-brother. Uh, obviously, Dad got remarried again and uh, my real biological dad. Um, so I, I got to meet my sisters and my brother to, to Dad, and I grew up with three sisters, half-sisters, um, uh, with my mum and my stepdad. So in that, uh, as much as I you know, was looked after from, uh, you know, I was given clothes, I was given food and schooling and things like that, uh, I still felt like an outsider in someone else's family. Uh, I didn't really feel the connection that, that you would, um, you know, with biological parents and biological siblings. Um, because I, as a, as a kid, I felt like I was treated differently to my stepsisters and, um, you know, from correction to rewards and things like that. So, dad or from your dad? From my stepdad from my stepdad and from my mum. Um, and, and, you know, now I understand that, but as a kid, I didn't understand that. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So in that, I just, I had a bad attitude and I uh, messed up my schooling and I purposely stuffed it up to the point where, you know, a teacher would give me an exam in grade 10 and I put my name on it and give it back so I'm finished because I wanted them to know that that was mine. I, I wasn't interested. I my My attitude was simply, well, if you're not going to love me, um, I'm just going to mess my schooling out. Because I looked at it and I thought, well, I can do maths, I can do, I can read and write, I'll be fine. <laughs> so, as a 
stubborn teenager I was. Um, so I purposely messed up my schooling to try and get back at my mum and my stepdad. Uh, and then, you know, there's other aspects of my life that, you know, got me to the stage of being so angry and so negative and so depressed and um, wanting to be violent and all that sort of thing that actually led me to my crime. It wasn't just uh, not being loved by my stepdad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's certainly times where, you know, he tried uh, and there's certainly times where I tried, but uh, I suppose it's like trying to connect two pieces of wire in the dark and you just, you just not, it's just missing every time. And, and yeah. I think that's how our relationship was. Uh, we just couldn't really connect. Um, now we've, we've actually connected now, you know, well and truly after the fact. Um, and, and we do talk and we do have that relationship and, that connection, even though my mum has passed away, she passed away 2004, um, I still talk to my stepdad and, you know, still have that connection. He doesn't live in the same house and all that sort of thing. It's not that close, um, but it's it's better than what it was when I was a kid. There's no doubt about that. So thinking about as you growing growing older and in your teenage years, you're saying you're quite stubborn um, and quite angry yeah. started to sort of develop feelings of anger. Can you, can you pinpoint maybe some, an event or a few events that really started to foster that anger in you and lead you down a, a, a delinquent path maybe or where things started to go wrong for you? Yep. Um, there's a couple of different events or moments in that, in that time. When I was about nine or ten, we started going to so – my mum and my stepdad were Catholic, Roman Catholic sort of background anyway – and we started going to a Christian church in Townsville where we lived and it was Christian Outreach Centre. And uh, that's where I gave my life to God. And that's where I surrendered to God and said, yeah, I want to pray this prayer and accept Jesus Christ into my life as a kid uh, and become a Christian. And that was about the age of nine and ten. Uh, and then uh, at the same church, uh, there was a guest preacher um, and she was a bit of a prophetess in that she would pray and get a prophecy from the Lord for people and she'd be able to prophesy and it was actually quite accurate. And she came to Townsville and she was at our church and uh, this is a stage where, you know, I'm sort of just becoming quite stubborn and quite, you know, critical and negative towards mum and my stepdad. And How old were you now? When you uh, nine or ten. Oh, it's that age, okay. It's, that's when I gave my life to the Lord. And yeah. it was about 11 or 12 this lady came. Yes. And... Um, I, I basically had a pretty bad attitude and coupled with a bad day, uh, that didn't really help. Um, the lady was preaching and she called all the kids in the congregation. There's probably about a hundred people there. And she said, can I pray for all the kids? Um, and I just sort of shrunk in my seat and I, I didn't want to go up the front because that's when you get prayed for, you get prayed for up the front. And um, my mum said, go up the front. And I said, no, no I don't want to. And then my stepdad leaned over and said, you will go up the front now. And I thought, oh, fine. So I went up there with a bad attitude. And um, she prayed for the kids and got to me. She prayed for me. And then she gave a prophecy over my life. And the prophecy, uh, I've got it written down in my Bible, so my mum gave it to me. Um, the prophecy was basically saying that you're going to be a preacher. And, um, you know, I, I walked out of church that night. And I remember that I said to God out loud, we'll walk into the car park. Um, and I was in front of my mum and my stepdad and my sisters, and I said to God, I don't want what you've got for me. I want to do what I want to do because my perception of being a preacher at that age 
was what I saw. Some poor guy busting his gut on a Sunday to try and earn a living. And that's what it seemed to me. And that I didn't want that because I said, you know, I, want, I, don't, I don't want to be a preacher to God. I want to do what I want to do. And I look back in hindsight and I just see that God said, okay, Alan, you're going to go the long way around the mountain, but when the time's complete, you'll come back to me. So basically from that night, I turned away from God and my life started going downhill and um, emotionally and spiritually and, and physically from that point of view. And, um, and then there was another time, uh, probably shortly after that, I was still about 12 years old and I went for a walk down the, down the, down the street where the, the creek was. And um, as I'm walking down the street, I just said to myself one day, I'm going to kill someone just to see what it feels like. That was the words that come out of my mouth. And um, where do you think that thought came from? I've just been allowed to watch violent television and okay. and and just you know thinking, oh, because you know when you watch TV movies, most of the time you know there's a hero at the end of the movie. Um, you know the, they rescue the the woman or the, the woman rescues the the people or or the you know the police officer saves the day, whatever it is. But in a violent movie, generally the bad guys get shot or they die. And the, the perception that's put across, this is for me as a kid at that time, the perception for me was that even though they're the good guys, they get to kill someone. I wonder what that feels like. And so it was that like a curiosity. Yeah, that, that's where my thinking was at at that time. So I thought to myself and I said out loud, one day I'm going to kill someone just to see what it feels like. Uh, clearly, that was totally, you know, not the right thing to think or right thing to say or right mindset to have. There's no doubt about that because there's no good reason for taking a person's life. Um, but because I said that, I, I believe that I allowed myself to go down that path of thinking and, and mindset um, that whatever's going to lead me to that, I need to study. So I, I continue to study martial arts, even to the point of, you know, um, when I was turned 17, I joined the Army Reserves to learn how to kill people, um, not not to serve my country. Um, the hope was that, you know, I was in the Army Reserves, uh, we'd come, our country would go to war, I'd go to war and I'd be able to kill someone. Uh, that was Wasn't happening consciously, do you think? Like, were there conscious thoughts? That was my conscious thought. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that was my conscious thought um, to... To, and and I'd be legally allowed to do that in, in the army, um, army reserves. And, uh, you know, that's clearly not the right attitude or right motive to join the army reserves or any, any for armed forces. I'm sure you didn't say that in the interview. No, no, I didn't say that in the interview, <laughs> but funny enough, I actually, uh, I did try to join the Navy to start with. And, uh, um, I was denied based on uh, a bad psych report. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> so that's one good thing I suppose <laughs> but uh, I was allowed to join the Army Reserves and you know my thinking was always based on how can I be violent how can I learn more violence etc etc so did you ever tell anyone else that you were thinking that way like that you wanted to kill someone did anyone know that you were thinking like this not really I mean once I started getting into the drugs and things like that, I, I spoke like that to people who I drug, I smoked drugs with. So yeah, I, I got a bit of a reputation then with, amongst my my friends back then, <clears throat> acquaintances I should probably call them. But yeah, 
like a reputation for being for wanting to be violent and and obviously okay. being violent because in the drug scene you know there's always someone who rips you off and there's always someone who you know wants to steal your drugs or do something stupid and yeah. so you want to fight all the time so how old were you when you got into the drug scene alan i was 16 when i was given my first bit of pot to smoke and who um, gave you that oh just another friend who i hung around with just you know meet in the street and um, he happened to actually be in the army as well. So he was a couple of years older than me and, uh, we hung out a bit and there was a few of us. And, uh, so he said, you need to try this marijuana. You need to try it. You just need to know what it's like. <laughs> so I was, I was conned into trying it. Um, and, and, you know, being, having a wrong attitude and, you know, not caring about anything and having been rebellious. I was like, yeah, I'm going to try that. No problems. So I tried it and. I liked it. So it's your in, introduction into the criminal life started with this curiosity as a child and the way you're thinking. And then the first kind of act was an act of juvenile delinquency, really like curiosity, yeah. um, trying something um, under peer pressure from a friend. Yeah. So that, that was the beginning yeah. of the criminal acts. Where did it go then in terms well, of your criminal journey? beginning of criminal acts was probably more to do with um, vandalism and, you know, smashing things because I had a bad attitude, um, you know, smashing the windows of a shop or, you know, a car or, um, you know, doing petty, petty things like that, which is really, really the start of that for me and just doing silly stuff like that and trying to steal stuff and breaking enemies. And uh, as a kid, I got into that sort of stuff. That was really the start of criminal behavior for me. Yeah, okay. And then and then I got into the drugs and the drugs exa- exaggerated that for me. It was like, oh, well, I need, I need more drugs. So I need more money. So I have to steal something. Did you ever spend any time in prison for any of those criminal activities? No, I didn't. And um, the, the, the next biggest crime that I did was arson and attempted arson. I was actually 17 and the friends that I hung around with, we liked to do you know, stupid stuff and things that drove our adrenaline. And uh, we decided to, you know, throw some Monotov cocktails and, uh, you know, throwing them just onto the road wasn't enough. Uh, so I ended up... Can you just explain what they are? So Monotov cocktail is um, uh, just a glass bottle filled with a flammable substance, whether it's kerosene or petrol or, or um, something else that's flammable. Uh, and it's got a cloth in the end of it that, that the some of the liquid flows into the cloth and you light that up. Uh, and because of, you know, if it's on fire, when you throw it, the cloth won't go out because the flammable liquid keeps it on fire. And as soon as it smashes on the ground, everything ignites. Okay. So that's a Monotov cocktail. And it's so- generally in a beer bottle or something like that. But yeah, we, we were throwing them around and I ended up torching the car. Uh, with that and uh, a random car or was it someone just a random car and it was it was unregistered it was unroadworthy um, and it was on the side of the road in an industrial estate because we were just you know driving around thinking oh what can we torch you know so this car just happened to be there and I thought oh well that's okay that's safe it's it's no one's it's not registered didn't have number plates on it so I was trying to justify it to myself but still it was uh, it was criminal because someone else's property so we, we torched the car and then we went somewhere else just so we didn't get caught. And it was probably about an hour later, we decided, hey, let's go back and have a look at the car. So as we drove back into the street, 
the police were still there. And it just happened to be at two o'clock in the morning, someone closing up their workshop who saw us, it was an industrial area, and saw the car and the police pulled us over straight away and we still had the cloth, same sort of rags in the car that were used in the bottles. Yeah. And uh, we just admitted to it. Yeah, we did it. And, you know, well, I did it. I did that. Uh, so I got, I got uh, community service for that. So tell us about the big one, Alan, that got you some time in prison because even your time in prison was a little bit um, exciting. I think there was an escape involved as well. So you've got quite a story. Yeah. So I was with um, my drug smoking buddy and uh, he rented a room in this unit and the guy that he lived with um, was a drug dealer and we bought drugs off him occasionally. So we were smoking. They, they had an argument this particular night and, uh, and I thought it was really funny because from my perspective, they couldn't fight. It just looked like, you know, two kids wrestling on the ground, really, even though they were grown men. So when that had finished, my co-offender and I went back to his room and kept smoking marijuana. So I smoked, we were already very stoned and we smoked probably another 20 cones of marijuana each and uh, which is a lot, then he said, I'm sick of this guy, let's kill him. And I basically just replied very quickly, I said, yeah, why not? Because I'd already made the decision. So long. Yeah, I'd already made the decision um, back when I was 12, one day I'm going to kill someone just to see what it feels like. Now, in that state and in that mindset and in that immaturity, I obviously didn't process you know, this is a person's life or, you know, this is not a really good reason. You know, I'm not a, he's not a threat to me. Um, so I didn't process any of that. And uh, it was just blatant murder. So he was asleep, the victim, and my co-offender and I just, uh, I helped him plan, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And then we initiated it. And I, I picked up this, large piece of timber which was uh 4.1 or 4.2 kilos uh which was weighed in the court and my co-offender had a a 12 inch shifting spanner um so i walked into the room the victim was asleep on his mattress on the floor and and i just hit him in the face with it he was he was laying on his back Uh, and thankfully he's well not no thankfully about it but I hit him in the face with it and it rolled, the timber rolled off um, and then my co-offender comes straight in behind me and hit him in the head about four or five times with the shifter. We walked out of the room and in the lounge, we walked his bedroom and into the lounge room. My co-offender was saying, we did it, we did it, Al, we did it. Because from his perspective, he wanted to, to kill this guy because uh, one, he'd ripped us off with some, some drugs um, they had a fight that night and also that the drug dealer guy was trying to sleep with my co-offender's girlfriend. Uh, now, none of that's a good excuse to take a person's life. I just want to say that. Um, but that was our reasoning back then in our mixed up state of mind. So my co-offender said to me, we did it, Al, we did it. And, and as he was saying that, the victim, the guy was, he was 23 at the time. He... Um, started making loud noises because he was moaning, you know, and I was just, you know, just in a lot of pain. And I said to my co-offender, I said, well, you want to do it, you better go and finish him. And uh, 
And he said, no, no, he just started panicking. So I, I walked back into the room and he was sitting on, by this time he was sitting on the edge of the bottom corner of his mattress and just blood everywhere and looked at me. He was totally like, you know, didn't know who I was. And uh, I said, what happened? What happened? And because he didn't know who I was, I just walked past him. I picked up the log and I hit him in the back of the head again, uh, which pushed him into the bottom, the foot bottom of his mattress face down. And then I grabbed the 12 inch shifting spanner or my co-offender gave it to me. I can't remember. I had it in my hand and because I'm right-handed, I actually put it in my left hand and, and I hit him in the back of the head as his face was in the mattress. I hit him about five or six times and the shifter was closed like it was wound closed. Uh, so because the slide of the shifter was sticking out, the police actually thought he was shot in the back of the head a few times Right. in their initial investigation. And then uh, we walked out of the room and, I continued to help my co-offender with the alibi that we'd sort of created before this. So because he was a drug dealer, there were a few people after him and that was part of our alibi that this wasn't us, it was someone else. We threw the shifter in the river and turned the fan on in his room to cool his body quicker. And because in, in that process of, as a kid, and I said, I oh, one day I want to kill someone to see how it feels like and being allowed to watch violent television. I then started as a kid, I started you know, thinking, how do we kill someone? How do I kill someone and get away with it? So I used to watch, literally, I used to watch the Murder, She Wrote series. Right. Because that was what my mum and my stepdad used to watch as well. Yeah. Um, and obviously in those shows, every show that someone gets murdered, and uh, every show they work out how the murder happened. So I'm thinking as a kid, I would not make those mistakes. So that's why, you know, I knew to, have an alibi and turn the fan on to cool his body down and all this sort of stuff. What was the purpose of that besides cooling his body down? What would that do for you? <clears throat> to try and um, slow or, or hinder the coroner working out the time of death, which would help my co-offender's alibi. Because my co-offender's alibi, was when, we, when we went down the river through the shifter in the river, um, I said to him, now you need to go to the, this, even though it was early in the morning, it was about one thirty, two o'clock in the morning, you need to go to the petrol station to get a packet of cigarettes so your face is on the camera. Right. And uh, at that particular time. So if they worked out, you know, the time of death was here and his head was on camera somewhere else, that would eliminate him. Um, so cooling the body down quicker, you know, it, it sounds very callous. And at that time I was callous. Yeah. Um, so that, that was the reasoning for doing things like that. So after so many years of thinking about how you'd like to murder someone and then finally you did, how did you feel? Well, when we went to the river and threw the shifter in the river, I got back up to the top of the riverbank and my co-offender was, you know, in that mindset of saying, yeah, we did it, Al, we did it, still, you know, talking about that. My mind shifted straight to I need to kill him oh. so, that, so that he doesn't tell on me then I'd just create my own alibi because, you know, whatever it was. Um, but I decided not to, obviously. And um, then we went down further in the river and he went to the service station to get his head on camera. Uh, by the time I'd got home that night, uh, it really hit me of what I just did and participated in. And um, I actually cried myself to sleep. Um, and I actually prayed and said, God, please forgive me. I'm really sorry. 
but you know it was in essence it was a frivolous prayer because when i woke up in the morning i woke up to um a couple other mates banging on my window saying um hey someone just killed this guy this drug dealer they knew they didn't know it was myself and my coal finger uh, and I said, what, what do you mean? What happened? And I just pretended I didn't know. And uh, we smoked drugs and, you know, I just carried on like I didn't know who did it. Um, from that aspect of it, obviously at that point in time, my prayer to God was not real because I was in the, whoa, you know, I'm in the buzz of they don't know it was me. Um, and, and so that was a bit of a high, um, but it's a high I never, ever want again because it was devastating to my emotions and to my actual um, personality, uh, clearly. Uh, and then that next day, when I woke up, the police actually come and interviewed me because there was someone else there earlier that night at that house, at that unit, and they knew who I was and they said such, I, I was there. So the police interviewed me while I was doing community service and I just lied. I just gave them my aspect of the alibi and, and they said, oh, okay, that's cool. Thank you so much. And um, obviously they interviewed my co-offender because he lived there. And um, the first interview, he told them the alibi. The second time they come and interviewed him and they questioned him, um, he started to crack under the pressure and the fear of being caught. And he started telling lies and they picked up on it straight away. And um, the police questioned him to the point, you know, they did about six interviews with him and um, got him to the point where he confessed to me doing it. So he didn't say that he had any participation in it. He just blamed me. He was and, your uh, secret. Yeah, he, he, he blamed me. Um, then they told him, well, you're going to have to go and get his, his confession, my confession, on tape. So he come to where I was doing community service the second day, the next day, and um, he was acting really strange and, you know, saying, oh, we shouldn't have did this and we shouldn't have did that and rah, rah, rah. And I'm thinking, mate, what are you talking about? They had an extra, he had two packets of cigarettes in his hands I'm thinking he's got a tape recorder in there, which he did. And uh, he was trying to record me saying, yeah, we shouldn't have killed this guy or something like that. And, and within a few minutes, the police just swarmed us both. And uh, uh, then I realised, oh, they, they know. And then when the police were interviewing me in the watch house, they said things that they shouldn't have known. So I realised, oh, like the shifter was in the river. So obviously only my co-offender knew that. So I said, oh, so my co-offender's told on me, told on both of us, is how I was thinking, and um, I'm busted. So I just said, yep, yeah, we did it. And I confessed and I, I cooperated with the police from that moment and said, this is what happened, why we did it, even though it's not a good reason. And uh, this is where we threw the shifter and I cooperated with them from that point of view. And that, that cooperation helped me in court, uh, but I was still originally charged with murder. And um, at that moment, and, and during the trial, though at the end of the trial, uh, which was 12 months later, the um, murder charge got dropped as manslaughter and I was sentenced 12 years with a recommendation for parole after eight. So two of the jury members said no. Uh, even though I confessed and, and cooperated with the police, two of the jury members decided no, he shouldn't be charged, as in neither of us should be charged with murder. Do you know why? No. Well, the only the only reason I have is... God had a plan and um, at the end of the day, I just, after eight years and three months and so many days in jail, God knew I was going to become a Christian and give my life back to him. I gave my life back to God after six years in jail. And um, 
yeah, never looked back. First and only time in jail? Yes. So even when I was arrested for arson, they didn't put me in the, in the watch house at all. I went in there to get fingerprinted, but I, I never spent a day and a moment in, the, in a prison cell. What was that like, walking in there for the first time and knowing you've got a really long time to spend in here, completely unfamiliar environment? I'm glad you asked because it's, a, it's an important moment in my life and I like to share it. So I've just been fingerprinted and I've just been charged with murder. I've interviewed, uh, gave my side of the story, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm thinking, what next? And I'm thinking, you know, because the only other time I'd been involved with the police, I was fingerprinted and I was given bail straight away. So I'm thinking I'm going to get bail because that seemed to be what happened last time. So maybe, you know, that's what's going to happen this time. So anyway, the police officer said, right, just follow me. And this is in the watch house in Townsville. And I, and I followed the police officer, walked down. I'm going, oh, I'm going to a prison cell and th- in my mind. And he said, right, go in there. And as I walked into the prison cell in the watch house, it was a dead end. And there was nowhere else to go. And then all of a sudden, there was the loudest noise I've ever heard. And it was the door being slammed behind me. And it's just echoed with me for the rest of my life. That, you know, it's a dead end. There's nowhere else to go. And uh, that noise, you know, I can still hear that noise, the door being slammed behind me. That conjures up a powerful image, doesn't it? Thinking it's a dead end, there's nowhere else to go. That's right. And thinking that, you know, at that moment, I'm thinking I'm going to spend the rest of my life in jail if I survive. Was it frightening the first few days or did you... Yeah, it was, it was scary because, you know, I was, I was only 18 when I went to jail and uh, I turned 19. Like I went to jail in March, turned 19 in May. And um, obviously, you know, watched plenty of movies about what happens in jail. So that fear was in my mind and in the watch house, I tried to commit suicide a couple of times. And uh, so it was in the watch house that I actually prayed and said, God, I'm really sorry. Um, please forgive me. I prayed again, the same prayer. But basically I look back and I see that I had my fingers crossed <laughs> because I was saying, God, you got to get me out of this mess. And I'll, I'll repent right now if you get me out of this mess. And again, I just look and see that, you know, God said, no, you're going the long way around the mountain. And um, you chose this, Alan. We've heard plenty of stories like that. If you get me out of this mess, I'll go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. That's right. (laughs) That kind of uh, strategy, the bargaining with God strategy. And it doesn't work because you see straight through it. So I I, um, spent the first four days in the watch house and then they sent me to the Stewart Correctional Centre in Townsville. So, yeah, it was a very big eye-opener and uh, thinking, you know, am I going to spend the rest of my life here and, didn't really want to obviously and in that process of thinking that I, my, 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 my biological dad actually came to visit me he came up from Brisbane and I said to him if I get charged with this if I get time I'm going to escape and he said don't do that mate don't do it um, <clears throat> so on the 23rd of December 1993 I actually did escape how did um, you do that well obviously you know when you think about being inside a maximum security prison breaking out of your prison cell, then breaking out of the yard, then breaking out of the the 20-foot wall that was there, and then over another barbed wire fence. That's actually quite difficult. So I just conjured up a plan that, you know, I'm going to get a prison escort to the hospital um, to get an X-ray. And uh, so I faked that I actually had broken ribs 
Okay. I, I went to the library in the prison and I read the signs and symptoms of broken ribs. And then I should have won a, a Logies Award or something because I convinced three or four <laughs> nurses, four or five prison officers that I actually had cracked ribs. Um, and I had a witness who was the guy who worked with me in the, in the visit area garden. And I, my story was that I slipped over on the concrete in my thongs uh, and landed on the garden edging, which cracked my ribs. And I couldn't breathe. So they needed to send me to the hospital to get an x-ray. Uh, because it's easier to run away from two unarmed prison officers at the hospital than it is to break out of a high security prison. Yeah, of course. So, so that's what I did. And running with handcuffs on was easy because I practiced on the football field, running with the football. <laughs> that was my practice. So I actually got away from the hospital. Yeah, I got away from the hospital uh, to unarmed prison officers. And um, because the moment they're not paying attention to me, the prisoner, was when you get out of the vehicle, their standard operating procedure is to make sure every door is locked. So they're both looking at the prison van door as it locks. And that was my go gun. Right. I've got just a few seconds to actually run and be, you know, a couple of metres ahead of where they would be if they are actually looking at me. Yeah. Um, so that was my go gun and uh, I ran. I got caught two and a half hours later because it wasn't a very good plan. <laughs> I was still handcuffed. I got caught in Queen's Gardens, which is the botanical gardens in, down near the Strand, which is where the old hospital was. So I was given an extra two years, which went concurrent with the 12, and an extra nine months, which added to the eight. So I was now doing 12 years of recommendation for parole after eight years and nine months. As I come out of that garden, I was devastated. But in part of me was glad that I was caught because if I didn't get caught, I would have killed again. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, okay. I, I had not changed at that moment. That was only just after 12 months of being in jail. So you, so you knew you still had the capacity to do yeah. this, even though... After the last, the first time and the only time, you cried yourself to sleep, but there was still something in you that you knew would go back there. Yeah. I, I nearly killed two other guys in jail in my time there as well, just getting into fights and, um, you know, nearly broke a guy's neck and another guy nearly stuck a broomstick in the back of his throat into his brain. So two different incidences that were you know, pretty messed up, but I'm glad God didn't allow that to happen. Because if you kill someone in jail, you never get released. And, and I just see, I look back now and I see that God protected, not just those guys, but protected me because uh, I wasn't to spend the rest of my life in jail. So it's interesting that you sort of, in retrospect, um, are able or sort of explain that that was a protective factor for you. Why do you think that protective, like the, a God's protection wasn't there the first time? That is a very good question and um, one of those questions that I suppose God can only answer, but my, my only understanding of that is that I was just not susceptible whatsoever to hearing the voice of God. I was so cold um, the first time when we took the, the life of the, my first victim, my only victim, um, when I took his life, I was not susceptible to listening to God whatsoever. I was so rebellious and so closed-minded and closed in my heart, so hardened that I couldn't hear God's voice. So do you think even though you were still acting in violent ways, then if, if you're saying that you know, you're able to be more receptive um, to God's voice 
that change had started to happen already or do you think that came a bit later? I think it was a process of change and that change had sort of happened and or started to happen, I should say. It definitely added all up at the end when I gave my life back to the Lord uh, in jail after six years of being in jail. I still spent another 22 months in jail, so it wasn't to get out of jail. Um, but, yeah, those moments all added up at the end of the day for me to actually say, hey, I need to choose God and make it real. Did you go back to any of your old ways in terms of violence or offending against other people or was there a real noticeable change in who Alan had become? Uh, I think I smoked drugs one more time and I think that was a, the following day or the next day after that and uh, I so regretted it and it, it just really hurt me actually to smoke the drugs uh, which was really bizarre because I'd never felt that before and uh, um, then that was the last time. But since then, I've never been in a fight, never been, um, apart from sparring and, and training martial arts uh, with other people, never been in a fight, never hurt anyone, yeah, never done anything like that, no, no crime, no, no stupidity, uh, which is really good. And it's actually a, um, a good feeling, uh, totally bizarre. And, and I know from that point of view, or because of that, that that's what God's changed in my life from the person I was thinking that, you know, I don't have a future. Mm. Who's going to want to hire me? Who's going to want to marry me? Who's going to want to uh, be my friend? Because I killed a guy, but he was asleep. I killed him in his sleep. So no one's really going to trust me, especially not going to sleep, you know, in the same house. Yeah. Uh, that was what I was thinking. So from my, from my perspective back then, my only future was to be a debt collector or a hitman or, um, you know, even to that point of I wanted to be a serial killer because I had so much hate and bitterness. I believe that was simply because I said yes to God and he counseled me seven days a week for 22 months. So when you first got out, did you work? Like what happened? Because there's a fairly serious offence that you got next to your name. What, yeah. what was the first sort of experience outside of jail in terms of reintegrating? I was able to ring my mum. My mum and my stepdad visited me in jail, you know, quite regularly and uh, supported me. So I rang mum and said, hey, come pick me up. And I started going to church at my mum's church the first Sunday that I was out. And uh, I'm sitting there, you know, listening and praising God. And um, this lady from behind me says, um, I just feel that God's telling me that if you want to do Bible college, I'm going to pay for it. And I said, okay, I'm going to let you. <laughs> so I started Bible college the following week. Uh, I did about 10 months there. And my first job, um, so I wanted to start earning some money and get out and do a bit more. Um, my first job was at a, a steel shed. I rang the manager because I knew the manager. He used to be a prison chaplain. And okay. I said, hey, I'm just wondering if you've got any positions. And he said, um, yeah, come and have a look and see what you think. And I said, do I need to bring a resume? And he said, no, I know who you are. <laughs> so he was a prison chaplain. And uh, he, so I, I went. knew what you'd done. That's right. He didn't care. Um, he did, he did care, but he was, he was happy with where I was at. <clears throat> and um, so I started working there. And I worked there for probably six, eight months. And then I tried to go and live in Brisbane um, to go down and be a bit closer to dad and try and reestablish that, that uh, connection with him down there. And um, I spent all my money. So I didn't have any money left, really. Uh, so I had to go back and back up to Townsville. When I went back up to Townsville, I ended up getting a job um, at a coffee club was the only coffee club uh, cafe in Townsville at the time. 
and I got a job as a trainee manager. I enjoyed it. It was great. Uh, it was an industry that I'd sort of been in, in jail. So I worked in the kitchens in jail and uh, I enjoyed it. So Did they know about your record as well? Yes. Oh. And the, the manager at the time who hired me, so I went through a job agency and, and the agency lady knew my past and she spoke to the guy, the manager, and, and I went and introduced myself to him. I had, had a meeting with him and he said, mate, that's all good. I'm fine with that. Just don't bring it to work. And he had absolutely no fear because he was a former SAS guy. So he, he just said, yeah, I, I can handle you if you've got any dramas, if you become a drama. So he, he was a really nice bloke and uh, really gave me a kickstart there. And, and I started working as a manager of the coffee club there and a trainee manager of the coffee club there in Townsville. Uh, but I still ended up moving to Brisbane. I actually got a job as a manager of a coffee club in, in Brisbane. And I went down there and that's where I met uh, my wife in Brisbane. So it'd been nearly, nearly two and a half years I've been out of jail. And um, I started going to Garden City Church, which is in, in Mount Gravatt, and uh, which is now Hillsong, Brisbane. And um, one day, Sunday after the morning service, I felt God say, go down and introduce yourself to the senior pastor, who was uh, Pastor Bruce Hills at the time. And I walked down and introduced myself and said, hey, I'm, I'm the manager of coffee club just down the road and, you know, just really feel that this is where God wants me to come to church. And he said, that's cool. You're, you're welcome. You can come. Glad to have you here. So the, the next couple of weeks I'm, I'm going to church and uh, I look down the front and a, a few rows in front of me, I used to sit, send me up the back sort of thing. And I saw this lady and I thought, wow, she's nice, but out of my league because she was dressed in business attire and uh, I was just dressed in, you know, common day rags for me as a, as a bloke. <laughs> and uh, I thought, wow, she's out of my league. And uh, anyway, two, the next week or two weeks later, uh, I'm sitting in my usual seat and she comes in and sits beside me. And I said to God, well, this is, this is good, God. Anyway, we had a few songs and I had the meet and greet. And I said, hey, my name's Alan. What's yours? I said, Marissa. And uh, I said, cool. And I convinced her to give me her phone number at the end of the service in those first three minutes. So anyway, we sit down and we're watching the church news on the big screen and uh, she's rummaging through a handbag and I see she had some chewing gum in a handbag. And I said to God, I said, God, if this is the woman you've got for me, get her to give me some chewing gum. And she says, do you want some chewing gum? And I said, yes, please. <laughs> so she gave me some chewing gum and, uh, at the end of the service, we swapped phone numbers and, and I was going to a, a park picnic with a couple other people in the church. And I said, hey, I'm going to this picnic. Do you want to come along? And she said, no. And uh, she's had a business meeting to go to um, on the north side of Brisbane. And I said, okay, cool. So I'm at the picnic and the phone rings. She says, can I come to the picnic? And I said, what happened to your business meeting? She said uh, uh, her friend that she was supposed to meet, uh, her, her key broke off in her car door. Uh, so she couldn't get there. Right. And I said, I thought to myself, well, angels shouldn't be allowed to get away with that, but I'm glad they do. So I said, yeah, come to the picnic. So she's come to the picnic. She's sitting down and I'm standing there talking to her. And this other lady from the church comes over and says to me, is this your wife? And I said, no, we're not married yet. <laughs> and uh, so Marissa just laughed. She thought it was funny. So we texted each other a couple of times throughout that week. And, and I felt God say clearly to give her your testimony. And I said, no, 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 not yet. Because when I got out of prison, you'd understand this. When I got out of prison, I was quite um, probably a little bit pompous with my attitude as being a Christian. 
And I used to say, hi, my name's Alan. I just go to prison at people at church because I wanted to see where they're at, you know, in their Christian Great way to make friends and Yeah, that's people. right. Win friends and influence people. And, and, and I'd get people who go, oh, that's great. I've actually got a thing. They'd look at their watch and I've got to go. See you later. Uh, not everyone, just a few people. And, and it was funny to me. I thought it was funny. But after a while, I've realized, hey, I've got not many friends that want to talk to me. So I stopped telling people where I was, like as in prison, and I let them get to know who I am now, who God had changed me to be. And I'd tell them later, they're six months, eight months down the track, hey, oh, by the way, I was in jail for killing someone. They'd go, what? It's just short circuit. They just couldn't comprehend that because yeah. you, you don't even look like a prisoner. You don't sound like a prisoner. The stereotypical thinking of what people have been grown to to understand and believe just didn't make sense to what they could see in front of me, what they could hear. Uh, because God changed me from the inside out. And uh, I said to God, no, I'm not giving him my testimony. I don't want to scare her off. I've done that. And he goes, no, give her your testimony. And I thought, well, I'm going to trick God. That never works. <laughs> and I said, God, okay, if you want me to give her my testimony today, get her to bring it up. So I went around, visited her, said, hey, let's go for a drive. We went up for a drive up to Top of Mount Gravatt. And she started pouring out a life story. And I thought, great, I'm next. God's answered my prayer and said, get her to bring it up. So she brought it up and, you know, I, then I said, okay, look, after she'd shared her life story, I said, okay, that's cool. Um, I, I totally understand, this is my wording too, I totally understand if you don't want to know me, you don't want to talk to me or don't want to get married because as of, as of yesterday, we were getting married. Uh, this is the second time I met. So today's the third time we'd met. I'm sharing my testimony that I'd killed someone in jail and God's changed my life. And at the end of that, she said, with tears in her eyes, she said, it doesn't change a thing. We're still going to get married. So that was a big moment in my life and, and obviously in Marissa's. And now we've been married. This is our 17th year. Sorry, our 16th year. 2003, we got married. We met in 2003. Got married in September 2003. Um, so, yeah, we've been married for quite a while now got two kids and yeah it's awesome so i'm i'm a little bit curious now on okay like that's very much on a personal level you know personal you know like um this thing's for you but now you're a minister of a church and um that's that's a pretty big very trusted position in society and we see what happens to ministers who violate that position in society yeah how did you get to be a minister first and win the trust, I suppose, of the people who are in your congregation? Well, they don't know. No, no I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely know. I've had to... Know had to now, jump, that's right, they know now. I've had to jump so many hurdles, and, and rightly so. Um, I've had to jump so many hurdles uh, from a point of view of, you know, is this guy real? Has he really changed? Has God really changed him? Or is he just you know, putting on a sham. Um, how, did you, how did you convince them, I suppose, that you had changed? <laughs> what were the things that you drew on to show people that the change was real? Well, all I can say is that I trusted God. And in that trust, I submitted to leadership. So when they said, do this, I did it. Even though it made no sense to me, even though it was like, this is not going to get me to where I believe God's calling me. At one stage in my life, you know, after marrying Marissa, and all I thought my ministry would be was simply sharing my testimony, saying, you know, don't go down this road. I've been there. I've worn the brown shirt. 
um, it's not worth it. And, uh, and I did that for a long time and I never really thought I was going to be a pastor of a church. Uh, I never even thought I was going to have a credential to be a credential pastor or an ordained minister. But, um, you know, God opened those doors and I believe he opened those doors because I was submissive to leadership and obedient to him as in God. Um, and what I mean is that, you know, for example, um, everywhere that we went to church or we went to garden city church and, and then it became Hillsong. We stayed there for a while. And then I, you know, started doing Bible college. I did a bachelor ministries at the city point church, which is Christian outreach center. Um, and in that process of doing my bachelor ministries, I felt God say, I want you to be the pastor of a church. So going through that process, I had no idea what that was going to look like, um, how I was going to get a credential. I just knew he wanted me to do a bachelor of ministries. Um, but it was taking that step of faith. I, I, I realized and I worked out that everything I need to fulfill my calling was within my calling. I had to step into it to actually access it. So stepping into my calling was going and applying to do a bachelor of ministries. While I was in there, the doors opened. So in that submissiveness of I'm doing, being submissive to God, he wants me to do ministry, wants me to do a bachelor degree uh, in ministry, um, being submissive to my tutor, my lecturers, being submissive to the, you know, the program in that regards. Um, that's all part of the next door opening. So in the next door opening, it was simply uh, contacting um, someone who was in the Australian Christian Church's state um, leadership team and saying, hey, I just feel that this is what God's asking me to do, to get a credential as a pastor. So going down that path, that person simply said, all right, this is what you need to do, A, B, and C. I then did A, B, and C, which led us to move from Hillsong, Brisbane, to uh, Pastor Wayne Elkhorn's church, which is, uh, it wasn't him that asked us to move there, but uh, he's the national director for Australian Christian churches. And I moved to that church, and I said, hey, I know how to do church. I know how to preach, and then I had an idea, and I hadn't done much of it, but I know how to public speak and that. I just need to know how to do church outside of a Sunday. So I got on the team there from a volunteer point of view, and, and I would go, and this is no discredit to, to Pastor Wayne or the church. I, I got on team there, and I, and I used to go to the prayer meetings, just to go to the staff meetings, um, I didn't have a role. I was just going there to be available to do whatever needed to be done. And, you know, I was asked to do a few things. And when you look at it, those things had nothing to do with learning how to do church. But they had everything to do with me being submissive to leadership. And it's in that process that continued to open door, open door, open door for me to become a senior pastor of the church. So when you talk about submission to leadership, is that just willing to be a part of willing to be a part of someone else's vision. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Murder is um, a really serious charge and something that a lot of people might be afraid of. But it, it's almost like everyone has just sort of accepted that that was your past. But have you, did you have any really adverse experiences with people um, because of your past? There's definitely been um, different responses from people. Uh, none of them had been like adverse in the point of, you know, abusive and say, get away from me sort of stuff. Uh, uh, there's certainly been people that have been cold, like, oh, 
you know, I'm not sure if you're real or what you're saying is real, but, you know, I'm going to distance myself from you because you've got that past. Um, so there's certainly been that sort of response, and I understand that. Uh, that's okay. I'm not going to push. I'm not going to try and make you believe that I'm real or that I've actually changed or God's done it. I'm just going to accept them where they're at and love them. But so outside of church, outside of that and besides your coffee club job, have you had any, were there any other jobs um, that were sort of non-church based? Um, just yep, the- for sure. I've, um, I've also uh, did a, a bit of time as a trainee manager of a subway store. Um, it's a very busy role and uh, I just decided not to continue with that. I've had my own businesses, a, an eBay business, an internet business. Um, I've had a cafe at uh, Wynnum. Then I had a, the coffee cart at Garden City Church. I actually leased that and that. And then my last working for job, working job for someone was I worked at a, a restaurant at Garden City Shopping Centre okay. called Charlotte's Cafe. And a lovely couple who own that, lovely staff. And the funny thing was, this is one of those funny moments. I, uh, I never told him that uh, I had a criminal past. And so I thought, I'll get, let him get to know who I am now and then tell him later. So it was about six months I'd been working there, maybe four. And I said, oh, by the way, the manager already knew, but the owner didn't. The manager found out probably a week before I told her and she was like, what? No way. So when I told the owner, he said, no, you're lying. He just did not believe me. He said, you're lying. Because at this time I'm married, I've got a kid, I've got, you know, I've been working for him four months and not a hint, I don't even have a tattoo. So I don't have any aspect of looking like a criminal or an ex-criminal. Not that anyone with a tattoo is a criminal, please understand that. Um, But, you know, there's not many people who have done jail, especially eight years of jail, that don't have a tattoo. So from his point of view, from a, from a stereotype point of view, I don't look like a criminal. I don't sound like a criminal. So when I told him, he was just like, nah, you're lying. You're telling a fib. You know, you're not telling me the truth. And I actually used to carry around my release paper in my wallet. So when you get released from prison, in case you get pulled over by the police and they say, hey, you should be in jail, your name says you're in jail, you get a release paper, an official document from the prison. So to convince him, I pulled this release paper out of my wallet and I said, this is it. And, and I'd had it for like, you know, since year 2000. And this is about the year 2006 at the time, seven maybe. And uh, he said, no, nah, you faked that when you printer at home. He just did not believe me. It took me about half an hour to convince him. And I had to convince him by starting to talk like a prisoner, not swearing, but just talking about prison. And he just thought, well, you know too much about prison to not be you know, who you say you are. While you've been talking, you know, like it's sort of there's a repeat uh, theme coming through that people who have had a chance to get to know you first are quite okay with your past once they find out about it because yeah. they know Alan today, not Alan then. Yeah. But what would you say, um, you know, sometimes time is not always um, on everybody's side to be able to have that opportunity to get to know somebody first. Um, say in the, in the case where someone has been released from prison and they are trying to get a job with an employer or trying to get some housing or trying to connect with a community group, what, what would you say to those people to encourage them to let ex-offenders or returning people back into the fold? 
It's a good question of why, you know, should we give an ex-prisoner a go and um, why should we? Especially if they've done something from an individual's point of view that that's a horrendous crime or that's a, you know, very dangerous crime or a violent crime. Why should we give them a go? I think from my point of view as an ex-prisoner and I've also employed people and I've employed ex-prisoners as well um, or ex-criminals in that regard. If I don't give them a go... I'm just going to be another cross, as in no no entry cross for their future, for them to enter into their future. If I don't give that person an opportunity to show or prove or even to themselves that they can be someone, at the end of the day, I'm just an X on their, on their little sheet full of Xs. If we can give them a tick and say, hey, I want to give you a go, I want to give you an opportunity to prove yourself. I want to give you an opportunity to, to really uh, step up and be all that you can be. And I'm here to support you in that. I'm not just going to give you a job, but I'm going to help you do it. If we can empower that individual and give them that opportunity, I think as an employer, we'll be more surprised because you've got to understand they've probably got a dozen knockbacks before they come to you and all they want is an opportunity to prove themselves. So how, how does somebody weigh that up with the anticipated risk, though? Well, you've got to manage the risk. Is it, is it a risk to manage or is it a, a, you know, this is a definite no, sorry, I can't employ you, you haven't changed, you're smoking pot in front of me, you know, you're still drunk. You know, obviously you've got to weigh it up. And if a person is sincere, they're going to come across that way. And, and I think, you know, most employers, unless they've just started the, uh, being an employer or, you know, a business owner today, most employers have employed enough people or done enough job interviews to pick, you know, the ones who are actually real yeah, or the ones who are going to try. And I, and I think if we can come from a different perspective, oh, you've ticked here, you have a criminal record. Um, do you want to allude a bit more to that or, you know, how, how you know, asking them maybe, and, and, I, and I know that, you know, we've got to be careful on what we ask of an employee in the interview, but maybe just simply stipulating, hey, I'm going to give you an opportunity uh, generally, you get a three-month trial anyway, and I need—I want you to prove yourself. And these are the boundaries that we're going to set. If you come out of those boundaries, you're obviously going to not have a job. But if you want to prove yourself, this is what I'd be saying to an, a potential employee, even if they've got a criminal record, even if they don't. If you want to prove yourself, um, this is the boundary. You got to—you got to—you got to not just do the job, but a, as an ex-criminal. Obviously, I'm not going to say this, but this is what I'm thinking. As an ex-criminal, I'm expecting you to go over and above and beyond so that you jump that hurdle. So you don't just walk around the hurdle. You've got to jump over it. And, and, and I'm only saying that because that's what I've done. I, I've done that. I've jumped the hurdle and I've made sure I've jumped, not just to jump over it a little bit, but to really jump over it. Yeah, yeah. So I've got one last question, and this is a question that we ask everybody who is engaged in um, the podcast because um, it's an interesting question because uh, you're not sharing a story, you know, about winning gold at the Olympics or something that's, you know, would be necessarily a badge of honour, except that your change in your redemption is absolutely a badge of honour. But why did you agree to um, be a part of this podcast and tell your story? (laughs) Why I'd be part of the podcast and tell my story is, um, the same reason uh, from when I what I said earlier that all I thought my ministry was going to be was sharing my testimony. Um, in sharing my testimony in the early days, I've seen 
you know, people think, wow, God's really changed him or, you know, I wonder if God can change me. And if I can help people get to that headspace, that thinking, that thought that, you know, if God did that for him and in all rights and all stereotype point of view, I had no future. I had no hope. No one was going to want to marry me. Who would want to employ me? If God's going to do that for him, maybe he'll do it for me. And, and I share my testimony to try and help people get to that point of simply being able to say, God, pick me. Here I am. Use me. Save me. Um, I need your help. I need life. And he's the one that's going to give it. And if people can come to that point uh, simply through me sharing my testimony, uh, the question I'd ask myself is how dare I not? Alan's story illustrates how identity is closely aligned with behaviours. Identifying as an angry young man, Alan behaved in extremely angry and violent ways from rebellion against his own education to drug use, arson and murder at the peak of his offending. His new identity as a Christian man now underpins his work as a church minister and his deep desire to help others live their best life. Identity plays a significant role in desistance from crime. This was made abundantly clear in the findings that emerged from the Liverpool Desistance Study. In this study, Professor Shad Maruna of Queen's University in Belfast sought to understand how those who persisted in their criminal endeavours compared and contrasted with those who had desisted from crime. He categorised these two groups as the persisters and the desisters. Maruna reports that desisters describe their move away from crime as being attributable to a complete transformation in the way they see themselves and what this means for their place in the world. He refers to this as the redemption script, which is characterised by three distinct features. First, desisters fundamentally believe that their true character is that of a desister. Second, they have the capacity to govern the purpose of their own lives. And third, they express a desire to contribute to society and future generations in meaningful ways. Alan's own redemption script aligns with these three features where he identifies as a different person than the one he was before. Because of this new identity that is anchored in his Christian beliefs and values, Alan's life is a living testament of how a transformation of the self can affect significant change from a life lived violently to a life lived honourably. In the next episode of I Am Not My Crime... If listeners are listening and they've got a sense of what a, a crim or an offender or a parolee should be, if I can humanise my story and they can warm to me, maybe their perspective around um, these big, bad, scary people will, will change. If you had the opportunity to say something to your victim's family, what would it be? Whoa. Um... <laughs> Thanks for listening to I Am Not My Crime from the University of Southern Queensland. If you have a moment, please subscribe, rate and review. This will help others to discover I Am Not My Crime. I'm Suzanne Reich. Thanks for listening. If this episode has brought up any issues and you need to talk to someone, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 Alcoholics Anonymous on 1300-222222 or Narcotics Anonymous on 1300-652-820. And blokes, if you think you might need help with anxiety, stress, depression or anger, 
you can speak with a counsellor from Mensline Australia on 1300 78 9978. Are you curious about why people behave in criminal ways? Maybe you would enjoy a fascinating career in the criminal justice system or one of the many associated agencies, working with people who have committed crime or been a victim of crime. Why not get a head start with your studies in criminology and criminal justice here at the University of Southern Queensland? To find out more, go to usq.edu.au slash bella. That's B-E-L-A, then click on Law and Criminology.